politicians. There are business professionals who proudly market themselves as change agents. We change how we buy things. 15 years ago, if I said the word Amazon, most of you would have thought about a river in South America. Not so anymore. We change how we get our groceries from walking up and down the aisles to now pulling into a parking space where some of you even have those goods delivered to your door. We change how we power our cars. We change how we entertain ourselves. Who remembers when there were just four television stations, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS? Yeah, some of you older folks, yes, we do remember that. And if the president wanted to speak, we were going to watch him because he was on all four of them. Who remembers having the blockbuster video card in their purse or their wallet? Who has one of those today? Nobody. It's easy to see the rapid change in our culture. Our church changes too. We're celebrating the 25th anniversary of our church this year. Most of you, hardly any of you were here 25 years ago, and most of you were not here 15 years ago. Our congregation has changed dramatically over the years. It's not just our church, our families change too. Rachel and I are no longer Much to my chagrin, we are no longer appropriately attending young married's events. We're we're not young. We're still married by God's grace, but we have changed. Grandparents pass away. Parents change as they age. Babies are born and homes are radically changed. Kids grow. They graduate from school. They get married. They start their own new family, creating more change. As creatures, we are surrounded by change. Now, some of you might enjoy that change. You might find that refreshing. But I know some of you don't. <laughs> My ears have heard some of you bemoan, why do things always have to change? Regardless of our preference, humans are marked by change. And all of this change leads to general instability. As created beings, we change, but... But our creator God, he does not change. He never changes. He can't change. When was the last time you spent any time contemplating that truth of scripture? That God is indeed immutable. That he cannot change. His inability to change or his divine immutability is what we're going to be considering today as we continue our series on a majestic view of God. And specifically our focus will continue to be on how do we as a church live in light of God's attributes. To better help us understand the unchangeable, unchangeableness of God or his immutability, we're going to ask three simple questions today. So the outline of the sermon is going to be quite simple. Three simple questions and as you might guess, three elongated answers. But three questions about God's unchangeableness, three questions about his immutability. That's the simple path I hope to walk us down today. But before considering that first question, let me confess this. My view of God is regularly too small. Too often, I don't rightly consider God as he has revealed himself in scripture. I can mix truth with error that leads to an insufficient and sometimes a warped or distorted view of God. And maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to this faulty view of God yourself. My experience, experience in ministry would suggest it's common for our view of God to be too small while our view of ourself is much too grand. 
we are tempted to make God more like ourselves. Succumbing to the temptation that God warns us about in Psalm 50, verse 21, saying, you thought that I was like you. No, no, we are not like him. Yes, he made us in his image, but we are not like like him. Too often we think of God in small ways, in bland ways, in largely insignificant ways. We are tempted to bring God to our level as we construct our view of him by, by tiny and sometimes misguided thoughts. Instead, instead, we need to think biblically. We need to think theologically about him. When we are informed by scripture, our view of God grows as we see him rightly. He rightly grows in our minds, growing larger and larger in his, in his immensity and in his glory. Immersing ourselves in the immensity of God and his attributes, it's a good practice. It's a good discipline. When this happens, we understand him better and at the same time, we see ourselves more rightly in relationship to him. He declares himself the great I am. I am not and neither are you. Think of it as a teeter-totter. If we think much of ourselves, we do not have a right perspective of God. Yet when we start thinking properly of God, we have a right relationship, right understanding of who we are as scripture defines us. So even when we struggle to know him fully, we should always aim to see him truly. Truly as he is, rightly revealed himself in scripture. And that, <clears throat> pardon me, that is my aim today. And it has been my prayer for myself and for you to understand, more, understand God more rightly today. So let's now get to the first of our Three questions. Question number one. What does God's immutability mean? What does immutability in God mean? And I'll try to answer this question by providing a biblical overview of just six scriptures. We could have done many, many more, but we just narrowed it down to six. And if you've been listening, you already know the simple definition of immutability. God does not change. It's impossible for God to change. He cannot change because he is perfect. If he cannot become more than perfect, he certainly can't become less than perfect. He is perpetually the same as we've been singing this morning. His sameness is continual, it is enduring, it is everlasting. He does not age, he does not improve, he does not diminish, he does not grow. He does not change at the margins. He does not have new thoughts because he knows all. He cannot grow in knowledge because he's already perfectly wise. He is never surprised, nor do his passions ebb and flow like ours do. God, in all of his glory, does not change. And God always has and will exist eternally. God always has and will exist in the fullness of his perfect attributes. There is no change in God because he is the most perfect in every moment before creation. He is the most perfect now, and he will be the most perfect after this world is no more. God's immutability applies to all of his attributes. It is what it means for God to be God. If God were mutable, if God was changeable, he would not be God. English Puritan Stephen Charnock, who lived in the 1600s, explains it this way. Quoting him, he says, Immutability in God is a glory 
belonging to all the attributes of God. God has attributes and perfections that are different. But immutability is the center wherein they all unite. God is eternally unchangeable in all of his attributes. God is eternally unchangeable in all of his attributes. So how can Orthodox Christianity make such claims? How can Orthodox Christianity be so definitive about the immutability of God? Well, how can we be sure that God indeed does not change? Because scripture reveals this attribute of God. God declares his own immutability throughout scripture. He is the one who reveals it to us. And again, we'll just look at six examples of this revelation in scripture as we seek to better understand God's divine immutability. First, text we'll look at and try to answer the question, what does immutability in God mean, is Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6, he says this, for I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, we're done. No, we'll continue. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If you remember, Malachi began with a reminder that God's judgment can result in the destruction of an entire nation. Did Israel earn punishing destruction? Yeah, most certainly they did. Edom sinned and was eventually demolished. They were obliterated. Israel, on the other hand, has been preserved by God. In Malachi's day, the people of Israel had moved away from God to improper worship, to improper sacrifices, to improper divorce and paganism. And what we see here is that Israel's survival is not because of their own merit in any way. It's quite the opposite. They deserved punishment. The one and only reason they were not annihilated is because God does not change and his promises are secure. This would have been a sobering message for the people in Malachi's day. They had wearied God with their words. They had wearied God with their sin. And God was not saying, hey, you have survived because you deserve mercy. That's not what he was saying. He was also not saying, because I love you, you remain. No, Malachi is specifically saying that Israel owes its survival entirely to the unchangeable faithfulness of God. His character is unchanging. Therefore, his promises are unchanging. In other words, if it is only his unchanging, imperfect promises that have kept Israel from suffering the same fate as Edom. The nation of Israel gave God plenty of reasons. Plenty of reasons for him to change his promises. Just as we do. Just as the children of God, we do the same. We give him lots of reasons to change his promises, yet he does not. Despite our rebellion against God, he keeps his unchangeable promises to, pres to preserve his children until the end. And we should praise God for his immutability. The second text that helps us answer the question, what does immutability in God mean? Look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Exodus chapter 3, 13 and 14. It says this, then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
There is no possibility of the I am being anything other than whom he declares. God is not one kind of God on a Monday and a different kind of God on Tuesday. Unlike man who have, we have our daily attitude shaped by traffic congestion. God does not change. He is who he declares to be and that does not change. He was I am to Moses and he is I am to us today. The third passage, it helps us answer the question, what does immutability of God mean? Turn to Numbers 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19, it says this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Again, note the contrast we see here. Note the contrast that God is making with man. He is not like us. He cannot lie, or we can and we do. He has no need to repent, unlike man, because he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly consistent, and he is perfectly certain. God's word is always true. He is what he speaks. There is no mutability. There is no wavering in God. I want my yes to be yes. I want my no to be no, but sometimes I fail. Unlike me, God never fails. His promises are perfect, and they never change. I sometimes will change my mind because circumstances arrive, arise differently or I, I garner new information that's helpful. It's impossible for God to have new information arise to an all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging God. Just as an aside, consider, consider the idols that tempt us in the world today. Whether the pursuit of success or notoriety or money or the pursuit of comfort or the pursuit of relationships or pleasure, these false idols, they all make promises to us. They all offer hope of satisfaction and contentment. But they lie. They lie. We pursue them. We taste them. We indulge in them. Yet we're still empty. Our self-centered idols make promises they don't deliver upon. They are false idols. They don't accomplish what they promise. They are false gods. They are not like our gloriously immutable God. The fourth passage that helps us answer the question, what does immutability in God mean, is Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah chapter 46, 8 through 11 says this. It says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time thing, I'm sorry, and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. In essence, this passage declares that if it is on God's to-do list, it gets done. And only God is God. Nothing can, can compare or rival God. His purposes are established, are established and he accomplishes all that he pleases. If he plans it, it comes to pass. He is not like us. We might strive to be like this, but none of us are. He is God. He does what he says he's going to do, 
and he cannot be changed or thwarted. Passage number five, Hebrews chapter six, verses 17 through 18. Hebrews six, verses 17 through 18 says this. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Again, God's purposes are unchangeable. His purposes are immovable. They do not change. And that's one reason why God is often referred to as a rock in scripture. God is an immovable rock. God acts. He is not acted upon. Charnock puts it this way. He's going to take a swipe at you guys. Listen carefully here. Charnock says, God is an immovable rock. We, that's us, we are floating and uncertain creatures. While he seems to approach to us, he doth really make us approach to him. He comes not to us by any change of place himself, but draws us to him by a change of mind, will, and affection in us. God changes not, but we can change by his kind grace. The final passage we'll look at to help us understand the question of what does immutability in God mean is James 1.17. James 1.17. It says this, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James here links God's goodness and his perfection to his immutability. We know God is good and we know he is always good. It's impossible for God to be anything less or more than a good God. And James argues here that there's not even a hint of change or variation in God or a shifting shadow. Let's briefly think about this shifting shadow idea. It it resonates with me and my study and hopefully you too, but... In my business of creating crop art and mazes, our aerial shots that we capture at the end of the project, they're they're critical for us. It shows the client that we did what we said we were going to do, and and we give these images or these videos to our clients for them to show to their audience. And what I've learned over the years is that shadows constantly change, and they prove to either be my friend or sometimes my foe. Shadows can make our work look stunningly gorgeous, And shadows can also make our work look disappointingly ordinary. It depends on the project location, the field topography, what surrounds the field, how tall the crop is, how the image is oriented in the field, what time of year it is. There's a lot of factors you guys don't care about. But regardless of those details, changing shadows dictate much of my summer travel because I want to get that absolute best shot I can for that client. So I try and anticipate where the shadows are going to be. So anticipated shadows influence sometimes when I get up in the morning. They influence whether I get to have lunch on particular days. They influence how late I have to drive in the evening. Shadows are constantly changing, unlike God, who is never changing. Kevin DeYoung helpfully summarizes God's immutability in this way. Quoting Kevin, he says this, God is immutable in his essence, knowledge, will, and purpose. His nature cannot be altered for better or for worse. His knowledge can never increase or diminish. 
Whatever he purposes comes to pass. His will is the necessity of all things. He is all being and no becoming. There are no latent possibilities in God. Nothing can be added to him or be subtracted from him. He learns nothing. He needs nothing. He grows or he does not grow. He does not improve. God does not change. Look, the definition of immutability doesn't belong to me. And like a crop art project, this is not my creative product. This is how God reveals himself in scripture. His divine attributes of immutability, they may comfort some of us. Or they might strike emotions that alarm us or shake us. But whatever emotion God's immutability provokes in you, that's frankly immaterial in regard to its truthful existence. As Adrian Rogers once said, you don't make him Lord, he is already Lord. You just realize it. Similarly, God is immutable whether one realizes it or not. God is immutable whether one likes it or not. God does not change. We are best served to not just surrender to this truth, but also joyfully worship this aspect this aspect of God as well as the other attributes that make God, God. Question number two. Question number two that we will look at and we'll try and answer. How does immutability help us? How does immutability help us? And I think we'll see a clear illustration of this in Psalm 102. For so, so for those of you who are antsy about when I was going to get to Psalm 102, here we are. We could have included Psalm 102 in our definition when defining God's immutability in the previous question, but I wanted to take more time to look at this psalm and look at the practical details and think about the implications and the lessons that we can learn and apply in our lives today considering God's immutability. So I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 102 and follow along as I read the entire chapter. Psalm 102 says, prayer of an afflicted man for mercy on himself and on Zion. A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath for you have lifted me up and cast me away my days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass verse 12 but you O Lord abide forever and your name to all generations and you will arise and have compassion on Zion for it is time to be gracious to her For the appointment time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth 
your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion and has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death. The men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Verse 23, he has weakened my strength in the way he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days for your years or for your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you have founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands and they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them and they'll be changed. But, But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Before we see and discuss the role of God's immutability that we see in this psalm, we're going to look at four other lessons that we can gain from this psalm before we speak specifically about immutability. But the first lesson I want to see is note the, note the title of the psalm. Note the title of the psalm. This is our first lesson. The title tells us that this is the prayer of an afflicted man. The title removes any doubt regarding his afflicted state, but it doesn't tell us specifically what the affliction is. We don't know the author, nor do we know specifically when it was written, although there, there's been a lot of ink spilled over that. But we do know this man was under great physical and emotional affliction. And I think this is part of the power of this psalm. It is for people who have been afflicted. It is for people who are afflicted. And it's for those who will be afflicted. And hopefully we, hopefully we should remember that all believers are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So as believers, we should expect affliction. The psalm is for all of us as it shows us how to respond when we do find ourselves being afflicted. Note the graphic language and the deep pain this man is enduring. His affliction is great. He seems to have lost everything, but not lost. He has not lost his sight on God despite his consuming lament. The second lesson that we see from this psalm is simply to pray. Pray in response to affliction. We'll see this in verses one and two. We should pray in response to affliction. We, we see that he is begging He is crying out to God, the Almighty, that he would hear his prayer. He's crying for help. He is communicating his dependency on God. His prayer is more desperate than it is elaborate. Yet he is is pleading to God to hear and respond. And in doing so, he is turning his heart, he is turning his mind Godward instead of inward. This is a lesson for us too. When we are afflicted, we can easily become self-focused and when what we need most is to raise our hearts and our minds heavenly towards God trusting that he indeed will hear our our pleas and I might not know the specifics but I know many in this room are like the psalmist today many of you are afflicted those afflictions might be as a result of family disputes or financial uncertainty 
Maybe the affliction is due to marital discord, the death of a spouse or a close family member. Maybe that affliction is because you are in an ongoing fight with habitual sin or a friend or a business associate, associate has betrayed your trust or your affliction is a battle with a physical ailment or someone you love is battling this ailment with no end in sight. Maybe your affliction is that you are simply lonely as you long for deeper, more meaningful relationships. Or maybe you find yourself in a longer than expected search for a spouse that you desire to share the rest of your life with. Let me encourage you, my friend, imitate the psalmist. Pray. Pray to God. Even if this prayer is the last thing you want to do, pray. Cry out to him consistently and earnestly. Pray, friend. And I'd even suggest this. Pray out loud. Pray the words of Scripture. When you have no words to pray, pray the words of God. Take God's word and pray it out loud so your own ears hear the truth. So it's your own ears hear the words of God that you're saying to him. Pray out loud until you believe the word of God that you're praying out loud until God, by his spirit, works it deep down into your heart. So friend, if you are afflicted, pray. The third lesson we see in this psalm, we see number three, a genuine lament. A genuine lament. We see this in verses three through 11. I think this text is raw. It is, it is heartfelt. There is, no, there is no pretense here. It is, I think, hard to read. It is explicitly vulnerable. The psalmist is not holding back. He's not putting on his, his Sunday morning face. How are you? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Great. No, no, there's none of that here. Look back at the text with me, starting verse three. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of, the, of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indig indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow. And I wither away like grass. This psalmist, this author, he is physically devastated by this affliction. He can't think straight. He's not eating. He's lost weight. He can't sleep. He is lonely. His enemies are attacking him. His friends don't seem to be providing any aid to him. He is constantly weeping. He sees the days of his life coming to an end. But we see a model here for us. God says, go ahead, fully disclose your heart to me. Be specific. I can take it. I think he also goes on to say, I already know it better than you, but go ahead and tell it to me anyway. Spell it out. Bring it to me because I'm the only one who can help you. God invites us to be honest with him. God invites us to be genuine in our lament. God is sovereign and he orders our steps. He is not surprised by what is afflicting us or how it impacts us. Nowhere in scripture are we promised to understand the reason for affliction. 
So we shouldn't expect a rationale for suffering other than knowing that it is ultimately for our good and for his glory. So when we are feeling afflicted, we should honestly lament like we see here in a straightforward way. He is our father. He wants to hear from us. He wants to comfort us. Because these words are here, we know that God wants us to cry to him in affliction and draw near to him. Yet, yet, this is not where the psalm stops. We don't stop with lament. We have hope and we need to rehearse this hope in the midst of our affliction. I think that's the fourth lesson that we see from this psalm. Number four, place our hope in our eternal God who is worthy of praise. The fourth lesson here is place hope in our eternal God who is worthy of praise. And we'll see this in verses 12 through 22. We can place our hope in the eternal God who indeed abides forever and his name will be worshipped in all generations. God is a compassionate and he's an eternal God. God is on his throne reigning and ruling. In our sin-soaked world marred by various afflictions, we know our next life will be free from sin. We know our next life will be free from death. We know our next life believers will be free from affliction. And we should look forward to that glorious reality as believers. And we should be praying, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus soon. Yet despite our current affliction or our suffering, we know it is not without purpose. Briefly consider the suffering of Joseph leading to the salvation of the nation of Israel from a famine. Time and time again, history shows us the faithfulness of God to future generations. Us being gathered together in this room as believers, as a church, it demonstrates the faithfulness of God. We don't have faith in Christ without previous generations persevering in faith and passing that faith, passing down God's truth to us to the next generation. Consider those who prayed for your salvation before you were saved. For some, that time might have been relatively short. For some, decades would best describe that period of time where others were praying for your salvation. And sometimes these prayers from previous generations, they might not have seen your saving grace in your life before passing to heaven. But all this time while you were being prayed for, you were rejecting him until he saved you. The outcome is a people praising the Lord. And note in the, in the psalm, this is not a personal or an individual praise. This is a corporate praise. This is the people of God praising him for who he is and his saving grace. Number five, the fifth and final lesson we'll see from Psalm 102. Number five, find comfort in God's immutability. Find comfort in God's immutability. We'll see this in verses 23 to 28. When we are suffering, our eyes will only see reasons for despair until we turn our gaze upward toward our immutable God. We will not find comfort until we look to the one who is, until we look to the one who never dies, and until we look to the one who never changes. The psalmist rehearses this truth. Look at verses 25 through 27 with me. Verse 25 says, Of old you founded the earth, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Note in verse 25, he acknowledges the handiwork of the creator God who formed the heavens and the earth with his hands. In verse 26, note that even God's creation has an expiration date. It will wear out. One day, creation will perish, yet God will remain. Heaven and earth will wear out like the knees of an eight-year-old boy jeans. But you, God, you don't wear out, you don't change, you don't diminish, you don't perish. You are the same and you have no end. The text is clear. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. This text should be amazingly comforting to God's people. Even the seemingly most immutable objects in our lives, heaven and earth, are perishable. But not our God. We might take our planet for granted, yet the ground we place our feet upon is not as sure, is not as dependable as our God. He is everlasting and he is unchanging. This highlights God's faithfulness, faithfulness to his people who are in great need. Knowing that God does not change should comfort those who are afflicted. It should also comfort us in our daily lives. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today is looking at question number three. How does God's immutability change us? We're going to get personal. How does God's immutability change us? And what are some of the implications of God's immutability on our daily lives? I want us to think practically. If God is indeed unchangeable, how should we be changed? Number one, because God is immutable, we can have unwavering confidence in him. Because God is immutable, we can have unwavering confidence in him. Just consider for a moment a little thought exercise here. What if God was not immutable, but instead was changeable? If God were to change for the better, then he would not be holy. And if God were to change for the worse, he would become less than a holy and no longer perfect. So how could we trust a God who changes? If his eternal will, his eternal purposes and promises were, were changeable, how do we place confidence in Scripture? And if we lose confidence in Scripture, how can we be secure in the redemption story? Or even our own personal salvation? How could we ever have eternal assurance if God changed his mind regarding the gospel? Or if he changed his mind regarding how he redeems sinners. If his power changed, would he be, be capable of fulfilling his promises? If God could change, he would no longer be trustworthy or worthy of our faith. This leads to awful implications. Charnock agrees, or maybe I agree with him, we'll see. Let me quote him again, he says again, what comfort could it be to pray to God that like a chameleon changed colors every day, every moment? What encouragement could there be to lift up our eyes to one that were of one mind this day and of another mind tomorrow? 
who would put up with a petition to an earthly prince that were so mutable as to grant a petition one day and deny it another and to change his own act. Wayne Grudem offers a helpful corrective. He says this, quoting him, a little reflection shows how absolutely important the doctrine of God's immutability is. If God can change, the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart. God is infinitely worthy of our trust because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, his perfections, purposes, and promises. Because God is indeed immutable, we can have unwavering confidence and trust in him. Number two, because God is immutable, we can have confidence in our salvation. Because God is immutable, we can have confidence in our salvation. Just briefly, Jesus is the same today, tomorrow, as he was yesterday. He's immutable. He's immutable in his care and his love for those who repent and place their trust in him. Furthermore, our great high priest does not change. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. King Jesus does not change. Our high priest does not change. Our savior does not change. And this should give us great confidence, not in ourselves, not in any self-righteousness that we have. No, our confidence should be in the unchangeable Christ. Number three, because God is immutable, we should be humbled. Because God is immutable, we should be humbled. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink said this, quoting him, the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming, changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds rest in God, in him alone. For only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in scripture, God is often called the rock. Understanding the doctrine of God's immutability leads to a proper distinction between the creator and the creature. And this should humble us. We are the picture of change. He is the picture of unchangeableness. He is God. We are not. If and when we neglect his immutability or we distort it in any degree, we blur the line between creature and creator. And when this line is blurred, we are in danger of thinking much too highly of ourselves. We are in danger of thinking that we control things that we don't control. We are in danger of having a low view of God. We are in danger, which leads then to a low view of his word, his ways, and his church for which Christ died. Remember, our desperate need is to be sanctified, is to grow, to be changed into, into greater and greater Christ-likeness. And we are changing in this process. We are being made holy. That is what we as believers hope to do. But God is sanctified. God is holy. God is the great I am. Considering God's immutability should humble us. Number four, because God is immutable, we should live with greater stability. 
because God is immutable, we should live with greater stability. When we accept our insignificance as creatures and surrender our lives to Christ, we receive God's grace that allows us to draw closer to him. And the closer we are to him, the closer we are to his ways, the more stable our lives will become. Our creator God is the definition of stability and unchangeableness. And as creatures, we need that stability found in him and found in him alone. He is the rock that we need. He is the rock that we need to run to. He is the rock that we need to cling to. He is the rock that we need to find a refuge in. Our friends, our families, our coworkers, they're all fickle. <laughs> but our God does not change. We can fix our feet on him as an unmovable rock. Our lives are more stable when we cry out, as David did in Psalm 18, where he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. If we are clinging to God as our rock and our refuge, our lives will be more stable. And that brings glory to God. Number five, because God is immutable, we need to fervently evangelize the lost. We need to fervently evangelize the lost. If we believe that God is immutable, we need to be seeking out the lost. While God's immutability is wonderful news, wonderfully comforting, wonderfully encouraging for believers, it doesn't have the same impact for those who do not know Christ. And for those in this room who do not know Christ, thank you for being here. Thank you for extending me your patience. But I wonder what you're thinking. I wonder what you're thinking about God who I've been talking about as he reveals himself in scripture. My friend, if you don't know God, I wonder what you're thinking. I feel it's my responsibility that you know that God hates sin. God hates sin and he's not going to change. He's not going to compromise his stance on it. His hostility towards sin remains steadfastly unchanging. He's not going to moderate his view of sin, even as culture might. There is no progressiveness in God. His justice is perfect. His wrath is righteous. If he declared something sinful, or if he even declared it an abomination in Scripture, it remains an abomination to him today. And it will remain an abomination to him on judgment day. And I say this, friend, I say this without self-righteousness because I too am a sinner. My only hope is, is because of the righteousness of Christ. That is my only hope. But I say to you, friend, out of a compassion, there is hope. There is hope. You don't have to remain a slave to your sin. You can change. You can repent. You can believe in Christ and you can place your trust in him. You are not like God. You can change. You can be declared righteous by God and begin growing in likeness to him. Biblically, we call this sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ as we spiritually grow and mature and change. As believers change, we are transformed by the gospel to become more like the unchangeable one that we worship. 
And if you want to know more about this immutable God and how he might redeem you, engage the person who brought you to church today. And if you don't know who to ask or you just walked in off the street, don't know anybody here, please come find me after the service. I'll be out those doors and I would love to have a conversation with you about our immutable God, about our King Jesus and how he is ready to save you. Finally, number six, because God is immutable, we need to live confidently in all of God's attributes. Because God is immutable, we need to live confidently in all of his attributes. We can live confidently because God's knowledge remains complete. It doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's love, it never, never ebbs or flows. It doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's grace is always miraculous and it doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's wisdom is always perfectly right. It doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's holiness is never compromised. It doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's sovereignty is always best. It doesn't change. We can live confidently because God's wrath is always just. It doesn't change. God's immutability, his unchangeableness is good news for believers. His immutability should act as a ballast for us as believers, helping us to be stable in this unstable world. And church family, church family, we should live stable lives before a lost world because of God's immutability. Will you pray with me?